If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, our gospel reading, Luke chapter 10. And I want you to imagine that you were in the crowd when this happened, all right? I want you to imagine you're in this crowd and this self-confident, self-assured lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. But it's sort of like the question you're asked when the lights flash and you pull over. Um, It's not necessarily uh, a please teach me something question. There's a tone, there's an edge to his voice. Like Luke, the narrator, he, he keys us into this in verse 25. It says the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's baiting Jesus. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's a little bit of an edge to it. He's trying to trip Jesus up. So Jesus, in this typical Middle Eastern kind of way, responds to a question with a question. What does the law say? Now, the word law there, uh, it's their way of referring to the scriptures, to the Bible, to the Old Testament. So basically, uh, Jesus says to the lawyer, what does the Bible say? They both believed that the Bible was the word of God. They both believed it had authority. And the man answers in verse 27, and he quotes the Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, bingo, that's right. Now go and do it. Now this puts the lawyer on the defensive. Uh, Jesus kind of did a judo move on him. Right, And so now the lawyer's the one that's being tested and feeling like uh, boxed in. Verse 29, it says the lawyer wishing to justify himself. Like that didn't turn out the way he wanted to, right? And so he asked in a good lawyerly fashion, well, what what do these words mean? What is my neighbor? I want some definitions here. And he expects the definition to prove to the people listening that the lawyer's got it right, that he's got it together. You see, as a good first century Jew, he expects Jesus to identify a very narrow slice of the population as his neighbor. And don't don't judge him. You do the same thing, right? I mean, the Republicans in the room, love your neighbors yourself. Does it really apply to Pelosi and Biden? Right. And, and the Democrats in the room, love your neighbor as yourself. Does it really apply to Trump? Right. Or just pick whatever, right? Maybe you're not even a political person. We've all got these categories of people that we need to find a way, right, to bracket them out of the kind of love that we're being asked to do here. Let's, let's define this. Surely I'm not accountable to love like I love myself, every single person, right? There are people that all of us want to kind of bracket out of that to find a, re, a justifiable reason. Now, the reason that the lawyer is doing this is because he knows the Bible. Luke chapter 19, where God's given these laws about loving your neighbor, right there in verse 18, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors yourself. And by putting those phrases in parallel, your neighbor and the sons of your, it's like, oh, my neighbor or my relatives. I get to pick the group that's closest to me, and that's who I'm required to love. The lawyer expects Jesus to restrict the list. Now, that's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, it's sick when we look at other people 
who are restricting the list, right, of who they're accountable to love. This kind of racism, this kind of prejudice. Now, Jesus answers this with a story that has become very famous, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Martin just read to us. This story of a remarkably kind and compassionate Samaritan who at enormous personal cost and at great risk to himself rescues this man who's been robbed and beaten and left for dead in a ditch and a Samaritan saves his life. And make no mistake, Jesus is the good Samaritan. You and I are like the lawyer. Half-dead creatures, mortally wounded by our sins, crippled by our pride, lying in the ditch. Robbed, beaten, left for dead. And Jesus is to us the good Samaritan, the unexpected savior, the generous stranger, the wealthy physician who lovingly moves toward us at, and at enormous personal cost, as you'll see later, places his life in our place, becomes the substitute, so that at the end of the story, instead of us dying, he dies. And he does it, and he gives us life. And then Jesus tells the lawyer, look how it ends in verse 36. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Be a neighbor to people in need. Be like the good Samaritan. Become the kind of person who loves even their enemy neighbor. Even the neighbor that really has to be the dumbest person ever made. The, the most racist person that's ever walked the face of the earth the most illogical person, the most unkind person, whatever it takes to tick you off, even that neighbor, go and love them like the Samaritan. All right, now let's look at this for a minute. How is it that the Samaritan actually does this? How does the Samaritan act in this way that differentiates him from the priest and the Levi. And I think that we can hone in and, and force ourselves to be honest with what Jesus is teaching us here if we think of this in terms of three ways that the Good Samaritan practices love of neighbor. And we can learn from these three ways, three ways that we can hold ourselves accountable for really loving our neighbor. First of all, this good Samaritan, in, in actually loving his neighbor, what he's doing is he sees the neighbor different than the priest and the Levite. I mean, all three of them see him. Look at verse 31. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, Verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by, just like the priest. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he saw him different. The difference between the Samaritan and the other two was that the Samaritan saw him with the eyes of love. And that's the turning point of the whole story. It's the way 
he looked at him, the way he saw him. Now, remember earlier I said Jesus is the good Samaritan, and it comes up all through the story, and I'll show you several of them, but one of them is right here, because by this point in Luke's gospel, already on numerous occasions, we've been told a fundamental characteristic of God is that he sees with love and compassion. So multiple times we've been told about God the Father and God the Son as as essentially in their nature, in his nature, God sees with compassion, with love. And so now when this story is told and there's one who sees with love, this is a story about Jesus. Now when the Samaritan sees the man in the ditch, he he expresses his love and this compassion. He participates in the faithfulness of God. Now, let's push down into this for just a moment. What does it really mean to see with the eyes of love? How, how can we do that? I mean, it's easy to do it with the cute little kitten pictures on YouTube, right? But how do we see jerks with the eyes of how do we How do we get ourselves to actually look with love at people it's very hard for us to look with love at? And three, three ways, okay? First of all, in order to see our enemy neighbor with the eyes of love, we have to see that person as a person who bears the weight of glory. Your neighbor is made in the image of God. The nincompoop who keeps ruining your life is made in the image of God. So don't look at your neighbor and say, what does my neighbor deserve for the way they're acting? Instead say, this is a person made in the image of God. What does God deserve? Trick yourself with your enemy, with your opponent, with the one that it's hard to love and respect. Trick yourself into seeing them with the eyes of love by reminding yourself they bear the weight of glory. They're made in the image of God. So what does God deserve? And then treat your neighbor accordingly. Second, in order to see with the eyes of love, you need to see the other person's pain. You have to learn to recognize the wounds that are hidden. For example, one of the big social upheavals in America over the last few years is oriented around learning how to see wounds that come from being disempowered by the system. Now, whether you're on the right or the left politically, wherever you stand with all this, one of the things that's coming out is that we've got to learn to see wounds that weren't inflicted directly and personally, but wounds that came out of disempowerment from systems. Some wounds are easy to see, but others are going to take you years of thoughtful reflection in order to see them. They're hidden by the weight of culture. Look at it this way. The whole story of the Good Samaritan turns on the centuries-long hatred between Jews and Samaritans, a hatred and a prejudice that has become institutionalized, prescribed into the law, worked into the very fabric of the systems of society. The reason the priests and the Levite couldn't see the man with the eyes of love is because their culture had shaped them not to do it. We've got to learn to see 
the hidden wounds of our neighbor that really bothers us. The third way that we can become people who see with the eyes of love is that we need to see people in terms of their possibility and refuse to reduce them to their worst behaviors, to their sins, to their vices, to their bleakest trajectory. To see with the eyes of love is to practice 1 Corinthians 13. To see with hope. Love hopes all things. Okay, so one way the Good Samaritan practices the love of neighbor is that he sees with the eyes of love. And that's not a feeling and it's not an accident. It's a a virtue that grows out of habitual practices of catching himself when he's looked at people the wrong way and tricking himself into seeing people the right way. This, This guy just didn't wake up and roll through life a nice cat. He's developed the habits that shape his character into seeing his enemy in a ditch. Instead of seeing him as a threat, he sees him with love. Now, that's one way. The second thing we notice of the Good Samaritan is not only does he see, like the passage says, with the eyes of love, we see him take up the works of love. He he not only is moved with compassion, he translates that compassion into acts of of love. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Love is not simply the goal that we're aiming at. It's the way we get there. To take up the works of love is to, be, is to refuse to be content with the easy definitions that let us off the hook of loving this person. Remember, the lawyer was looking for a definition that let him off. What is at stake is not whether we will use um, this feeling inside of us. What is at stake here is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of security and purity Or are we going to let the revelation of God's love and grace, are we going to let it challenge us to give love and grace to our enemy? Look in this lawyer. Look at the barriers he faced and the barriers we face. This kind of way the status quo blinds us to those who are suffering. The question that has to be put to every church is the question, is that church a credible sign to the world of God's reign and God's mercy over the whole of life? Is that church a sign to the world for the love of neighbor that we see in the Good Samaritan? Is that church a sign to the world that God cares for everyone in this city who falls into ditches? Now, as a church, we must be against sin and for compassion to the poor and for justice to the oppressed and for protection for the vulnerable and for the transformation into our city where every person who comes here has a chance for shalom. 
So be the kind of person who loves our neighbors. We have to, as we love ourselves, we have to see them with the eyes of love. We have to take up good, wise works of love. And third, we need to embrace the wounds of love. The wounds of love. Look again at the Good Samaritan. He's using all of his available resources. Oil, wine, a cloth wrapping, his animal, his time, his energy, and his money. All of it to care for this wounded man. And here's the trick. It is at great risk to his own life. Because remember, the fundamental backdrop, the driving tension of this story is the racial animosity at play in this part of the world. So here's the catch. This Samaritan was not safe in this area. The the closest I can get as an analogy to help us understand what everybody listening to the story would have heard is imagine the 1960s and a black man driving through a rural community in Florida finding a white woman beaten, putting her into his car, driving into a town where the KKK is running the show, checking her into a motel. How hard is it going to be for that man to get out of that town safe? That's a little bit of kind of what's going on. Part of the thing that charges this parable that the people listening to it would have felt was the danger that the good Samaritan was placing on himself. What happens after he takes the, the beaten man and he's the bad guy, the Samaritan? He looks bad. He smells bad. Everybody knows he's bad. What happens is he rolls into town with this beaten man and takes him into this inn. What happens when he leaves the inn? After he paid the bill, was there a crowd standing for him outside waiting for him? Was he beaten or killed? He was. We know that he was. Because Jesus is a good Samaritan. And we know what happens at the end of Luke. After he keeps hanging out with the wrong sorts of people. We know that they beat and they kill him. So now imagine what's just happened. The Samaritan traded his life. That's what Jesus has done for us. He substituted himself for us. He picked us up in the ditch of our enslavement to the dark powers. And in order to give us life, he stepped in in front of those powers himself, our substitution. What I'm saying is that the call to love our neighbor as ourself is the call to suffer the wounds of love. Jesus taught us that over and over on his way to the cross. He said, if you're going to follow me, take up what? Your cross. What we see here is that if we are going to live a life of love of neighbor and not restrict the definition in a narrow way, we must know that if we follow him and walk in the ways of love and see others with the eyes of love, we will not be reciprocated with love. 
taking up the works of love for others does not mean that those same works will be taken up with you. Seeing other people, seeing your enemy with the eyes of love doesn't guarantee that your enemy will see you seeing him with the eyes of love. Now, how in the world then, if that's true, if you get to the end of the parable and you haven't let yourself off the hook, you haven't narrowed the definition, but you feel that you weren't just in the audience asking the question, that you are the lawyer full of self-justification, full of easy tricks to let yourself off. If you get to the end of the parable and you feel the weight of this, the weight of, of the call to love your neighbor as yourself, how in the world can you actually pull it off? Well, thankfully, Jesus shows us in the very next story. The story of Mary and Martha. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with, with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. If, if you write in your Bible, that's a really important word. We'll come back, portion, which will not be taken from her. Here's what we need to recognize. Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, and in the very next passage, we find Martha doing it. Martha's being the good Samaritan here. Martha is serving her neighbor. Martha is extending care. She just received 13 tired, hungry, travel-weary men into her house and prepared a meal for them. And she didn't have a microwave. And she didn't have 30 Totino's pizzas, like just waiting to warm up, right? She had to start the fire. She didn't have a refrigerator. Who knows what this took? In fact, this word hospitality that's used there, it's a word that it means um, giving someone the fullest hospitality possible. It, in, it involves incredible generosity. So up to that point, Martha is learning the lesson of the parable. She's doing it. But then she gets agitated. Listen again to verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. That word distracted, it's a word picture about being pulled in every direction. And look what she says to Jesus. Lord, you do not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. Three times in like 20 words, first person pronoun, me, my, me. Martha is the good Samaritan, but she's like the lawyer. She's self-absorbed. She's self-justifying. Now, here's something really important to notice. The lawyer asked Jesus, you know, th this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you tell me what's in the scriptures. The lawyer says the double command of love, right? Love God totally and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer wants to kind of deal with the second one. Love your neighbors yourself, right? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to explain the second command to love, to show us what it looks like to love our neighbor. 
the story of Mary and Martha shows us that if we attempt to really love our neighbors as ourselves, it's absolutely essential that we first fulfill the first command, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. The fundamental to loving our neighbors ourselves is loving God. And fundamental to loving God is Mary's posture of a deep, attentive, unhurried listening to Jesus. Do you see it? When you read these two stories together, the story of Mary and Martha show us the difficulty of loving our neighbor as ourself, the difficulty of loving and offering hospitality, of seeing with the eyes of love and taking up the works of love and embracing the wounds of love. When, when Martha does it, it turns her bitter. It turns her as the wounds come into her, the wounds of love. As they come into her, she gets angry, she gets bitter, and she doubts that God cares. And the point is that if we are not like Mary, listening to Jesus, if we aren't sitting at the feet of Jesus, eating and drinking Jesus, we will do the same thing. The story of Mary and Martha shows us the difficulty of truly loving the stranger, the neighbor, our enemy. If you are not simultaneously, continually being renewed and refreshed by Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus. It's so easy to be tolerant of everybody except the ones who are intolerant. And suddenly, love turns to anger. Haven't you noticed this in our culture? There's a danger of activism done in the name of God, but unaccompanied by the counterbalance of that deep, quiet, calm, daily adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ where we sit at his feet and listen to him and to his voice and to his word. At the center of the book of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament, there's this deep insight. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. You have to be careful when you come to church. You have to be careful in all of your doing of religious behavior. That your fundamental disposition is one of quiet listening. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the story of Mary and Martha, who is doing that? Look at Mary and Martha. While Martha is bustling around serving Jesus, Mary is attending to the one thing necessary, quiet, attentive, listening to Jesus. Martha was well-intentioned, but she became ungrateful and harsh and accusatory. If we want to become the kind of people who can live a life in this city where we see our enemies with the eyes of love and we take up the works of love and we embrace the wounds of love. And if we want to be able to do that as a people and as a church without wearing ourselves out and wearing other people out in the process, then we must remember that one thing is indispensable. 
And what is the indispensable thing? It's what we see Mary doing. She sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he said. Verse 41, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Look, the more I study the parables of Jesus, the more I remember if God took on flesh, of course, he's the smartest person in the room. In the room. And of course, he tells the story better than anybody else. This word portion, okay, this is written in Greek, the New Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But the Greek-speaking people of Jesus' day read the Old Testament in its Greek translation. Okay, this Greek word in the New Testament, portion, it's used in the Old Testament for food served to God. When Abraham, in chapter 18, entertains the three visitors showing up, and, and he doesn't know it's God, and he prepares a meal for them and gives them a portion. And then in 1 Samuel, where there's a meal prepared and served up to God, and there's a portion. So think about the irony here. Martha was preparing a feast for the Lord, but Mary was delighting herself in the Lord's feast. Mary was delighting herself in the sweet pleasure of Jesus' word, and he was feeding her. Martha was preparing food, but she wasn't partaking of the bread of life. It's so hard to get quiet and into that still small space where deep inside of you, there is a secret conversation with Jesus. But that is the one thing necessary. Jesus, look, Jesus loved the lawyer. He loved him. And, he, and, and out of his love, he took his question seriously. And he led him with gentleness to see his own need. Have you let Jesus do that? Have you humbled yourself to God's word and let Jesus lead you to see your need, that you're not as well off as you present? Look at Martha. Jesus loved Martha. Twice he said her name. Have you seen that you must not try to serve the ways of the Lord and the kingdom of the Lord before you've accepted the Lord's service to you. So think about this whole section. On the one hand, we've got the lawyer. He's missing out on God's work in the world because of his selfishness and his self-assurance and his self-righteousness. And it manifests in racism. On the other hand, you've got Martha. She's missing out on God's work in the world also. Also because of her selfishness and self-righteousness. But her brokenness is manifested not in racism, but in anxiousness and nonstop activism. And it turns into bitterness and resentment of everyone who doesn't get on with her agenda. So we have two people, two ways of missing the point of what Jesus is about, of what the reign of God is about. To the lawyer, Jesus said, go and do. To Martha, Jesus said, sit down, listen, and learn. If Jesus was talking to you, 
which would he apply to you? I know what he would apply to me right now. I have been so busy. My plate is so full of things I'm doing for Jesus that I haven't prayed quietly in weeks. I know what he's saying to me. What would he be saying to you? Let's pray.